From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. And there's also kind of this vague apocalyptic narrative included in it. More than once I heard people saying, oh, well, we'll all be eating this someday. This week, we give a second listen to our conversation with Blue Delaquanti and Soleil Ho. They're the authors of Meal, a graphic novel about food, culture, love, and entomophagy. And chef Arla Noellen joins us with a nourishing soup recipe made with garden-fresh radishes. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. First, some news from Harvest Public Media. The Union of Concerned Scientists Research now projects higher temperature changes down to the city and county level. Its worst-case no-action scenario is more extreme than many other projections right now, and it shows that by the end of the century, the Midwest could see 38 days per year with a feels-like temperature of above 105 degrees. Senior climate scientist Rachel Licker co-authored the paper and says that kind of heat would wreak havoc on farmers. Conditions like that are just not safe for people to be working outdoors, so it would really have a big implication for the bottom line for farm enterprises. A recent federal climate assessment made similar calculations showing how areas of the Midwest could lose between 3 and 5 percent of working hours due to hot temperatures. The FDA sent a warning letter to Curaleaf after the cannabis company made numerous claims about CBD oil without verified evidence. The company, which is now reaching into the Midwest, claimed that CBD kills breast cancer cells, is an effective treatment for Parkinson's, and could replace prescription medications for clinical depression. Dr. Amy Abernathy of the FDA recently spoke to a Senate committee about CBD product violations. FDA is a science-based agency. Americans expect the decisions made by FDA are informed by the best available information about safety, and CBD is no exception. Curaleaf has said it takes the warning seriously and will change its website to meet FDA's demands. Madeline Beck, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media reports on food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Have you ever tried to craft a honey drop cake with bee larvae? What about a simple mealworm curry? Etymophagy, or the practice of consuming insects for food, has been all over the food media world for years. Often you hear it talked about as a sustainable solution for the world's growing demand for protein. My guests today have a different approach to the topic. Blue Delaquante and Soleho are the authors of the young adult graphic novel called Meal. Here's Blue with a summary of the story. The basic plot of Meal is that it follows a young woman named Yaro who is moved to a new town in the uh, hopes of getting a job at a new restaurant that is getting a lot of buzz for specializing in insect cuisine. And so the book is about 
her journey to try and get this job while she's making new friends and contacts in her new home. My name is Blue Delaquani. I'm a comics writer and illustrator. I am the co-creator of the graphic novel Neil, as well as the online comic Oh Human Star and a few other things. Blue is the artist and the primary author of the story. Solejo is a food writer and the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. She's also a co-host of the podcast Racist Sandwich and host of the podcast Propaganda on Bitch Media. Soleil played a consulting role for the story as someone with professional restaurant experience. I feel like it was small details that were really important, like how many chairs will fit in a restaurant and like how much yeah. is turnover. Kind of practical things, like what do you call a chef when you're mm -hmm. working with them? That sort of stuff. Yeah. Lots of things that help make the place feel authentic to the experience of running a restaurant and joining like the community of a restaurant's staff in a way that because Soleil has practical like hands-on knowledge and experience of how that works because of what she's done. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one of my favorite things that I added on, which is like to toot my own horn a bit, but just there's a scene at the beginning where Yarrow first enters Casa Chicatana, where um, Gonzalo brings up, he gets a phone call right from mm -hmm. the the food media, essentially the local alt weekly, and they ask about the restaurant concept and so <laughs> the part that we kind of added was just the way the reporter asks questions about the restaurant to sort of sensationalize it and mm -hmm. so that was a really nice kind of undertone there that set the scene for all of these other things that happened mm -hmm. in the book oh yeah and the other thing i should add is that soleil also contributed an essay to be a bookend for the graphic oh, yeah. novel that I, I, I think is like a super important part because it, you know, she's talking about, she has interviewed people she knows, like friends and contacts in the restaurant industry and people who practice entomophagy and, and do it in their, their restaurants. And I felt like that was really important because it helps establish that even though the narrative of Meal is fictional, a lot of these concepts are grounded in something real and something that people are experiencing and starting to share more in mainstream American culture. It helps anchor these fun fictional details in something that is real and that people have experience in. And Soleil, was there something in particular that excited you about the project? At the time, I think even currently, I'm so excited about food comics and just the new wave of food comics ever since Cooking Papa. There's just so much out there that renders food and drink in really interesting, challenging ways. And it's helped expand my idea of food writing. And so having a chance to work on something like that was so cool. I couldn't pass it up. It's a genre of comics that has really grown and matured a lot in the last 10 years, especially. There's so many amazing ways that cartoonists have figured out how to render food in, in art and in, in comics and also be able to communicate recipes and the history of, of food. It's really a great way to communicate a lot of unusual or esoteric or just like really interesting food concepts. And when you get to edible insects, making them look, I feel like illustration makes it look cuter than photography for a lot of people. <laughs> That's true. Do either of you have entomophagy in your own food traditions? In Vietnam, because my family's Vietnamese, there are some folks 
who make pho with sea worms in them. Uh, so it, they, they incorporate dried sea worms into the broth to mm-hmm. add like a certain element, a certain like je ne sais quoi to, to pho. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm Italian American. And the only thing that came to mind is the, uh, there's a, there's an insect called cochineal that for a long time was a red dye, um, that a food safe red dye that you can find in a whole bunch of things. And for the most part, it's been phased out for artificial red dye in food. I think one of the only exceptions is an Italian liqueur called Campari. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of Italian-wise that comes to mind for me. Well, there is the maggot cheese, Blue. Oh, I forgot about the maggot cheese. Do tell, do tell. (laughs) That's your people. (laughs) (laughs) There's this island. I, I can't remember the name of the island, but there is a place in Italy where they have traditionally eaten a type of cheese called kasu marzu and it is allowed to be inoculated or i guess used as an incubator essentially for cheese wasp larvae and so when the larvae hatch they consume the cheese and you know digest it and so people it becomes this really interesting creamy musky flavor and people just eat it with bread and um delicious wine and yeah it's they eat they eat the cheese like larvae and all. Do the larvae, are they still alive in the cheese or at some point do they not make it? Oh, yeah, they're, they're still alive. Okay. <laughs> so if we could talk a little bit more about the topic of entomophagy. So it's become a pretty hot topic in the food world, especially in thinking about it as a solution for meeting the protein needs and in a more environmentally sound manner in the future. But you make the point in the story and and in Soleil's essay too at the end about how eating insects isn't some new fad or a solution for the future, but something that's a part of many cultures, cuisines, and has been. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What is interesting to me is always the, especially in food media, because that's my world, the temptation to talk about the future of food and just think like with wide-eyed kind of excitement about what's coming and what food might look like as we rapidly approach our Star Trek-ish future, especially in the Bay Area, there's a lot of ideas that fly around. One thing that I found really interesting about that, though, is that a lot of entrepreneurs who are jumping on the edible insect bandwagon in the past, oh gosh, six years are of Western origin. And by that, I mean people from the first world-ish developed countries, people in from Europe or from North America. And that doesn't include Mexico, because I think a lot of people who are north of the border are the ones who are better situated to start these tech-ish insect startups. There's a lot of rhetoric about what insects can do for you, for your nutrition, for your lifestyle, and not a lot of that same slow food language that we mm. also been really excited about in the Bay Area and in the U.S. and across the world about, you know, thinking about the origin of your food, thinking about whole foods. That doesn't really apply to insects for some reason, right? (laughs) Um, Because so much thought is being put into the marketing of them rather than sourcing, for instance, or just their place in like a well-balanced diet rather than just a snack food. Mm -hmm. It's just so complicated and so rich. And that's what got me really excited about it. 
And there's also kind of this vague apocalyptic narrative included in it. More than once I heard people saying, oh, well, we'll all be eating this someday. Like the idea that, you know, when the bottom falls out of our current food way, that insects will be the perhaps not desired, but necessary replacement. The experience of entomophagy and edible insects is so diverse and varied because most people in the world eat them. And that means there's just a huge multiplicity of, of just ways that people go about that. And so in this town called Kushihara in Japan, they raise wasps in boxes in their backyard. It's mainly older folks. And they just kind of they capture a tiny, maybe baseball-sized nest in the spring and over the summer and fall, they feed them just chicken, like raw chicken, just throw it into the box wow, <laughs> for the larvae okay. to eat. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And the adults eat like sugar water, like honey water and bring meat to the larva. And so it's a kind of funny thing when you think about people trying to sell insects as a protein replacement because they are just feeding them like <laughs> the protein <laughs> that you ostensibly would be replacing with them. And so it's less about that shift in lifestyle and more just about we are cultivating these things because we enjoy the flavor mm-hmm. because we like them. And that's mm-hmm. so different from what we normally hear. You have to make the nest big because there's a contest at the beginning of November every year to see who has made the biggest hornet's nest or wasp nest. And so you got to make them big. You got to, you got to make them swole. <laughs> Soleil was describing this to me about like, who's like going to get the biggest hive. They ranged from like one kilo to seven. They're like gargantuan looking. They're just really, really big. And yeah, yeah. just talk about all of these like, you know, older retirees who would be winning and everyone else grumbling is like, oh, well, they can stay home all day and feed them chicken and squid. It's, it just feels like totally normal in a very charming small town way. And I really love how completely outside of a, say, North American experience, but still extremely relatable. I, yeah. I love that story. Those sorts of narratives are what are competing against the future narratives. So, Leah, I wanted to ask you if there are a lot of restaurants in the Bay Area that are offering dishes made with mealworms, with ants and grasshoppers or tarantula. And do you expect to be sampling those dishes and, and reviewing those restaurants? Oh, man. I actually just met one of the founders of Tiny Farms, which is a cricket and mealworm company out in Oakland. And he said that there weren't too many out here, but that he was willing to come with me to sample whatever we could. So yeah, I would be really excited to try restaurants, insects in the Bay Area, but I haven't yet. Okay. Do you also expect to be taking on the topic of of cultural appropriation in the restaurant world in in this new position? Maybe. It's it's sort of a thing that will be more implicit than explicit just because Uh I think the conversations about cultural appropriation are so damaged. I don't think people really understand how to talk about it. And so I think going about it in a more subtle way would probably make more sense. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so what do you mean by their, the conversations are so damaged? I mean, some people haven't even had the conversations yet. So Right. Oh, I mean, that's the thing, right? I think there's a 
knee-jerk reaction where culture appropriation means you can't eat food that doesn't belong to your culture. I think that has just triggered so quickly that reaction that I don't know if using that phrase makes sense anymore because I think people bring a lot of baggage to that conversation. Yeah. When really what you should be talking about is the racial wealth gap and about, you know, unequal business opportunities and cultural ownership and um, intellectual property rights and that sort of thing. There are so much more deep ways to be having the conversation, whereas cultural appropriation is just kind of, it's a flashpoint. And so, you know, I think, especially with me, I think there are people who have encountered my work who haven't really read it. Um, They think that I'm just going to be, you know, marking down all of the white owned taco places, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, And I'm hoping to, you know, reintroduce that level of nuance and complication. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today. <laughs> yeah, our, our pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Blue Delaquani and Soleho are the authors of Meal, published by Iron Circus Comics. We have links to their work and some of their favorite food comics on our website at eartheats.org. I have to say, I wasn't that thrilled about entomophagy when I first picked up the book. But by the end, I was genuinely wishing I could try some of the dishes described in the story. They sounded so appealing. I hope you have a chance to check out the book. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rash Insurance. Offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. I wish I could say that our recipe this week includes insects, but unfortunately, no. You'll have to get your hands on a copy of Meal for some recipes. Instead, this week we have a soup recipe from Chef Arla Noellen featuring the whole radish. We are gonna make a whole radish soup. I say that because we're gonna use tip to tail of the radish. There's so many vegetables where we only eat one portion of it, so it's really nice to be able to use the whole thing. Um, So we're gonna use the radish itself as well as its greens. So do you normally try to source a lot of your vegetables locally? We definitely try to work with local vendors whenever possible. It's always a balancing act. In Indiana, we only have a certain growing season and as a restaurant, we have to think about profit margins, but it's really important to us with, to work with local vendors, and we do whenever we can. Before we opened the restaurant, I had this sort of utopian vision of the classic restaurant owner walking through the farmer's market with their basket, shopping, picking up food to make specials with at the restaurant that day. I feel like you see that on like food television, and the rea- that's certainly never been my reality. Um, I've got so much going on that the idea of going to the farmer's market on tasks trying to buy stuff for the restaurant not run into a ton of people i know get in get out get over the restaurant and shop just doesn't tend to work i tend to prefer 
working with vendors where we can just have a separate arrangement where we pick up from them. For this recipe, Chef Llewellyn is using locally sourced radishes and chili peppers. Uh, we're going to really layer um, textures and temperatures in the soup. We're going to have a, a hot radishy base and then we're going to top it with some crunchy and some cold elements. Uh, we're going to start with making that little cold topping, which is minced radishes. We're going to use a pound of radishes for this stage, which is the standard size that you buy at a grocery store. You're just going to break these down into maybe half-inch pieces. Okay, so we're going to transfer these uh, cubes of radish to the food processor. So we're just going to pulse these up. Scrape down the sides. Okay, so uh, we're just going to go ahead and transfer those to something and put them away in the fridge until we're ready to eat our soup. Um, we're going to make our garlic poppy seed breadcrumbs, which will be the other garnish for the soup. We have about a half a cup of uh, peeled garlic cloves. It's probably about one to two heads of garlic. We could mince it ourselves or use a garlic press, but we're just going to have the food processor do that for us. So we're just going to pull these in here until it's minced. And now we've got four slices of whole wheat bread. So we've torn the bread into bite-sized pieces and we're going to have the food processor break them down into crumbs for us. Transfer the garlic breadcrumb mixture to a cookie sheet. And to this, we're going to add half a cup of extra virgin olive oil. And so how much salt did you add? That was two teaspoons of fine sea salt. And we're going to just mix this really well. So the breadcrumbs are all pretty equally coated with the oil and spread it out evenly on our pan. And we're going to cook this um, for 325 degrees for, we're going to have to start checking it um, every 10 minutes, but it'll probably take 15 to 20 to cook. Keep in mind that Chef Llewellyn is making a large quantity here. I think at home I might just pop this in the toaster oven and keep a close eye on it. Either way, you'll want to check it every five minutes and stir it to make sure it all gets evenly browned. So we cook them and stir them periodically until we got a nice, you hear that noise, it's nice and crunchy. And to that, we are going to add some poppy seeds. And now we're going to make the soup, which, as I promised, will take less work than the garnishes did. Okay, so we want a large onion. Just want to dice this up. Okay, so we're going to want to transfer our onions to a medium stock pot with a couple of tablespoons of oil. And we're going to cook this for about 10 minutes until the, oil, the onions start to become translucent and starting to caramelize a little bit. Meantime, we're going to get our other vegetables ready. So we want a half a cup of hot peppers. So we're going to mince these up. And we want three pounds of radishes cut into quarters. Again, I'm going to be using the whole radish. Don't feel like you have to remove the little scraggly root ends. It's totally edible. And this is going to be pureed later. No one's going to know the difference. So we're just going to use every part of the radish that isn't the greens. All right, so you could absolutely cut these by hand. Um, I already have my food processor set up, so I'm going to use the slicing attachment on my food processor. Same attachment to slice up some potatoes, but you could definitely just dice them by hand. So we want three cups of diced potatoes. Okay, let's go check on our onions. And a few of the edges are starting to caramelize a little bit. And we're going to stop there and add these vegetables we've prepped. Half a cup of hot peppers. 
our three pounds of sliced radishes and our three cups of diced potatoes. We're gonna transfer all that to the stock pot. Then we're also gonna add four cups of radish greens. And then we're gonna add four cups of water. That's a common mistake that people make when they're making soups at home, especially pureed soup, is they add a ton of water. And then they blend the whole thing and the, the vegetables taste really waterlogged and bland. I think there's something really amazing about tasting a pureed soup and really feeling like you're tasting the vegetable itself. And the best way to do that is to use very little water. So you want to want to maintain that water level. So you pour the first four cups of water in. You want to see where that water level is. You want to keep adding some water to keep it at about that level, but you don't want to add more or you're going to end up with a very soggy, bland soup. First, you're going to want to bring it up to um, a simmer over medium, medium, high heat. But as soon as you get that simmer, you're going to turn it way down to medium low and check on it every 15 to 20 minutes to stir it. And as I said, you may have to touch up the water level, um, but this can easily go for a couple of hours and just get nice and soft. The nice thing about making a soup like this is that you can go do other things while it gently simmers on the stovetop. So once the vegetables are entirely cooked down and very soft, just before we are gonna blend this, we wanna add a few more elements to bring out the flavor of, this, of the radish by seasoning it. Uh, we're gonna add six tablespoons of miso, one and a half tablespoons of rice vinegar, and a little bit of sea salt. And then we're gonna puree the whole thing either with an immersion blender or transfer it in batches to a traditional blender. If you use a blender or food processor for this, let the soup cool down a bit and be sure to blend it in batches. Hot liquids expand in the blender and can make a big mess if you're not careful. If you have an immersion or a stick blender, you can blend it right in the pot. Once you dish the soup into a bowl, you're gonna to wanna to layer on those garnishes that we've carefully prepared. Um, and we are ready to serve. And now comes the fun part. We get to taste it. It has such a complex flavor. I just, I love the heat from the peppers and the radish. It's, oh, it's really nice. I think you could easily serve that to someone and not point out that it was vegan. And I don't think that they would feel like they were missing out on a dairy or meat element at all. It's definitely very filling and rich. And again, really the only richness comes in those breadcrumbs. Um, otherwise it's really just vegetable mass that you're tasting, but you know, because it wasn't diluted and it has that complexity from the miso, you're able to serve people mostly vegetables. Well, I hope you enjoy it. And enjoy it we did, and you will too. <laughs> Don't even think about skipping the garnishes. They really make the soup. You've got at least two different kinds of crunch here, from the crisp, fresh radish to the breadcrumbs. There's some poppy seeds in there, too. It's a great contrast to the smooth and creamy soup. Look for the recipe on our website, eartheats.org. team includes Aoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Blue Delaquani, Solejo, and Chef Arlen Llewellyn.
Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.